Welcome to the Road to 70.3 series, a holistic journey of conscious transformation, endurance, and becoming. Using triathlon as a platform to ask questions, find purpose, and connect with community and nature. I'll be sharing solo and guest episodes along with a series of videos over the next nine months in the lead up to racing Ironman 70.3. You can follow along with the podcast, check out my new YouTube channel, IGTV, and join our Strava Road to 70.3 club for group runs, training information, and more. I hope you'll join me on this journey and see where it leads us. Welcome to the first guest episode in the Road to 70.3 series. I get a chance to dive in with Matt Fitzgerald, an accomplished author of over 20 books in the endurance and nutrition space, accomplished runner, triathlete, and coach himself. He's sort of become my de facto coach over the over my first few months of getting into this process as I've studied his book, 80-20 Triathlon, which is about how to set up your training program and why um, that sort of polarized low intensity versus high intensity is so important. I've also just bought his book, The Endurance Diet, where he learns from the top athletes and what they eat and sort of distills it into a really practical and useful guide to nutrition for endurance sport. And I've started his Training Peaks um, heart rate-based 70.3 program, which is an 18-week program, which I'll be sharing more information on soon. Matt was awesome to talk to. His uh, ability to trust himself, learn, um, grow, continue to learn, his sort of beginner's mind and student mindset with a sort of strong commitment and discipline is really awesome. He's got a great sense of humor and um, a very sort of zen-like approach to life at this point in his career and journey. So I hope you enjoy learning from Matt. Um, There'll be more to come with him in the future, I'm sure. But uh, in the meantime, this is a great and perfect guest to kick off this series with. So enjoy. Thank you. All right. So Matt, yes, thanks again for for coming on today, for, for sharing your time and um, sharing your wisdom as well. You know, this is our first time speaking, but I already feel like you've been coaching me through <laughs> reading your book, 80-20 Triathlon, and right uh, currently just diving into one of your training plans through through Training Peaks and listening to you on podcasts and stuff. So it's cool, cool. to actually meet you now. Good to meet you. Yeah. So I was wondering maybe just to start off and share some context, if you could maybe share a little bit of sort of your story with, with running and endurance sports. Um, sounds like you had an experience watching your father run a marathon at an early age and yep. have pretty much been running ever since. Yeah, uh, it was, I grew up in New Hampshire uh, and my dad ran the Boston Marathon three times actually, but the first time was in 1983 and our whole family, I have uh two brothers. And so the whole family trooped down to Boston, um, to watch him. And then my two brothers and I actually ran the last mile with him and, and crossed the finish line with him, which you couldn't do today. I don't think, Yeah, <laughs> but it, you know, that was, that was an amazing experience. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just sort of normalized long distance running, for me at an early age. Um, I was a soccer player back then. So initially I, I just ran, I started running right after that, uh, regularly, both just to, for the connection with my dad, but also I found that it helped me as a soccer player too. Um, and 
you know, here I am still running, uh, was it close to 40 years later? (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. So did you get into like running track or cross country or things like that in high school? Yep. I, I ran, um, ran a couple of track races. It's funny. I was just going down memory lane here. I, I joined our, my middle school track team at the end of the eighth grade, ran the mile a couple of times, and then I actually blew out my knee playing soccer right around then. So, um, didn't get to run the district championship. It was like, you know, this is the dark ages for ACL rehabilitation. So took me ever forever to re- fully recover from that. And by then it was winter track for my indoor track for uh, my freshman year of high school. And the, my surgeon said, you really shouldn't play soccer or ski or basketball or <laughs> pretty much anything involving lateral motion. So that was just as well. Soccer. I mean, running was the only sport I was any good at. So yeah, I was all in for running at that point. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Cause I, I tore my ACL playing soccer and that's what kind of got me into running in my mid twenties. Cause rehabbing from that, just being able to run in straight lines, like you're saying, it's a lot right. kind of safer. And then I did my other ACL playing basketball just a little over two years ago, two and a half years oh, ago. Wow. And, uh, and so it's kind of started, it's kind of reset everything now getting back into, into running, but it's been a much longer recovery process to work through uh-huh. the pain and all that stuff. So yeah, it's uh the ACL can be quite an interesting, uh, instigator for, all sorts of running endeavors. It feels like. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a pretty devastating injury. I mean, even today, uh, yeah, it can change things forever. (laughs) Yeah. Did you have to get surgery as a, like a young athlete at that point? Yeah. Um, yeah, mine was, I remember this is so long ago, but I, I remember it clearly the, you know, the orthopedic surgeon said, you know, first they just knew something, was bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they did an arthroscopic uh, surgery just to see what it was. And, and he told me after I woke up that my case was extremely unique in that I had completely severed the tendon, tendon, just ripped it right off the bone, but that none of the surrounding structures were damaged. He said, usually if the ACL tear is that severe, you mess up a lot of other stuff too. And that wasn't the case hmm. for me. So good news, bad news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. So um, as you kind of got into adulthood, um, you know, it seems like you're pursuing writing and sort of that academic pursuit as your sort of career path. But I imagine the, you know, pursuit of running and endurance and then triathlon just continued to build. Was it pretty parallel alongside that? You know, I I stopped running for a while because, you know, I burn out uh, at the end of high school and I had intended to run in college and that's part of the reason I chose the college. I went to Haverford uh, in Eastern Pennsylvania It's D- division three, but they had a really great program. It was perfect for runners like me, sort of like B level talents in high school. And the coach just turned them into, it was like a factory for churning out all Americans. And, and it's actually a huge regret now because when I quit at the end of high school, I thought I was done for good. Uh, but then I only got back into it. I mean, you know, this is call it fate, if you will. But a mm-hmm. um, couple of years after graduating from Haverford, I moved to uh, San Francisco and I wanted to be a writer. You know, I, I had wanted to be a writer 
in fact, was a writer from an even earlier age than I picked up uh, running. But by by that point, you know, I'm 24 when I moved to San Francisco, I, I was like overweight, out of shape, hmm. and not even thinking about running, honestly. Um, and I just wanted to get the first decent writing job or editing job I, I could get. And it happened to be that the job I got was with a startup endurance magazine called Multisport. Um, it was founded by uh, Bill Kotowski, the, the same guy who uh, founded Triathlete magazine, coincidentally, in, in 1983, the same year my dad ran his first Boston Marathon. And, uh, and so, I don't know, I, you know, it was a fun job. And you know, I still had an interest in endurance sports, but just, it was just really being in that environment what was what sparked my comeback to endurance sports. Like just being being in that milieu, I couldn't resist. Yeah, <laughs> so, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, being surrounded by like just the stories and the inspiration and that sort of like way of being, I imagine, makes it impossible to resist. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very I mean, it w- wouldn't have been seductive for everyone, but for me, given my, mm-hmm. my history, yeah, it, it was... It was a slippery slope. Yeah. So, you know, you meant, you said you were overweight and obviously hadn't really been running at that point, you know, being in your mid twenties is a probably a pretty good time to be able to bounce back and get into a higher level of like fitness and health, I guess. But what was that process like for you? I mean, I imagine you're covering and writing about and seeing like top elite athletes. Was it easy to you know, ease back into it? Or were you like comparing yourself to some of those top pros? Because I find with myself, you know, I'm just starting at triathlete or triathlon like sport. And I'm like looking at Yan Ferdino and comparing <laughs> my workouts to, you know, these people. And I have to constantly remind myself like, no, I'm just starting here. Like, take it easy. Yeah. No, I didn't really think in those terms at all. In fact, I um, initially... Um, I wasn't even thinking in competitive terms at all. It was just, um, I just started doing it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just running a bit um, with no particular ambitions, but, you know, I started to lose weight and, you know, I was young and, you know, the fitness came back um, and it just, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. it. It just like when I got to the point where I could just crank out 10 miles, um, I'm like, this is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even then it, it took a really a few years before um I I started thinking about actually racing. Mm-hmm. Uh I was just enjoying doing it. Yeah. I feel like that was a little bit similar to my experience after the first ACL. And it was just like, okay, exercising is fun, then starting to lose weight and feel better. And then because I'm running more and feeling better, I'm more conscious of my nutrition and just like almost accidentally falling into a right. good pattern of health and fitness and, and definitely a lack of stress or comparing or, you know, worrying about racing or worrying about other people. And it's now in this sort of second phase of coming back after the second injury, I, I feel so much more aware of all these other things that it's, it's almost more of a stressful process. It's harder to sort of accidentally fall into those like healthy patterns in a way yeah no you you can't you that first phase you can't have a second time (laughs) it doesn't work that way (laughs) yeah so for yourself um you know as you kind of started to get more into into running again you're writing about it um 
you know, the 80, 20 triathlon book is something I've been reading, um, pretty thoroughly lately. And I imagine through this combination of experience yourself and also the writing process, you're starting to see these different patterns, understand what people are doing and what's working. And it seems like a lot of your writing has sort of been connecting dots that maybe people haven't really seen before. So I wonder when you first sort of started having that experience where the melding of these, like the the exercise and the endurance with the writing and sort of figuring out these new ways of communicating that began. Initially, I, I was strictly a journalist. You, you know, I, I didn't consider myself, you know, I had a little bit of experience, um, but I didn't consider myself any kind of expert or authority. Um, so, you know, if I wanted to write an article about speed work or whatever, like I would find a coach <laughs> and interview the coach and then quote the coach in the article. Mm-hmm. But yeah, over time, you know, I started competing again and you know, improving, getting more serious. And I had, you know, I mean, if you want, you know, the goal certainly was never to become a coach or, or an authority. Um, but it was a pretty good way. Like, even if that had been my goal all along, it was a pretty good way to go about it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm training and competing on one side and then learning from the masters on mm-hmm. another, you know, I just, I didn't sign up for some course to get her credential or anything. Like, you know, I was talking to Paula Newby Frazier and uh, it was just, and it was, it was all initially early on, it was all endurance disciplines, you know, Olympic mountain bikers. And uh, I remember her doing a story on Eddie Matzker, who was the world's best inline skater back in like the, the mid nineties. Uh, so yeah, just like, just an amazing collection of experiences and, and it just all went in the soup and, um, you know, fast forward a few years, eventually I I started feeling like, you know what, I actually have my own ideas about this (laughs) at this point. Um, and it was, I think in 2001, so six years after I got that, that job with, with the magazine, um, that I actually started coaching. How did you find that transition? Like for myself, um, you know, as I, I had a period of like burnout and then really diving into a lot of like emotional, spiritual well-being and these practices and similar to what you're talking about, it led me to the place where I was like, actually, I think I could, you know, start sharing some of this information, but there was an interesting sort of period of like, you know, am I good enough to share this? Is this valid? You know, making that transition to a coach is an interesting, like, psychological experience, I find. Yeah, for me, uh, you know, I, I say this to this day, you know, perhaps it doesn't do me any good, but I, I am, I'm not a natural born coach. And it's part of the reason I waited. And, and even in, in 2001, I did it for a while and then stopped and then, and then picked it back up again later. Um, you know, coaches for me are a lot like teachers, you know, especially in this country, teachers are so poorly paid and poorly mm-hmm. treated and taken for granted. Like you have to really want to be a teacher, yeah. <laughs> you know, to put up with all that in, in, in this, this country and, and coaches are, you know, they're cut from the same cloth where, you know, I, I've gotten to know some of the very best in the world and you you almost can't imagine them doing anything else. <laughs> and and for me, it, I, I'm different. I, I have kind of more of like, I guess, like a writer's mindset. You know, it's, it's writing is very solitary. 
it's not really collaborative. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want anyone else messing with it. It's like, we're not going to write this together. Like <laughs> it's mine. Yeah. You, know, you can copy edit it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I just, I remember, you know, for the longest time thinking like the, the only athlete whose performance I care about is me, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, whereas like the great coaches I knew would just lie awake at night, you know, thinking about their athletes and like, how do I make this person better? How do I help this this athlete overcome, you know, whatever their big obstacle is. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I got to a point where, you know, a lot of people wanted me to coach them and I did like some informal coaching, both my brothers run and I would coach them. And, and as I started to get older and I was no longer, you know, trying to do things athletically that I'd never done before, it just started to feel more, there was more of like a desire um, to shift into more of a, a mentoring role. And I was also, I think the maturity helped me realize that just as there's more than one way to be a good writer, there's more than one way to be a good coach. And, and I started to think in terms of, I don't have to be the best coach, you know, I just have to be the best coach I can be. Like, I'm going to have a certain style. I'm not going to be able to work with every athlete, um, but I can, you know, exploit my strengths and work around my weaknesses or, you know, develop my weaknesses. And, and that has put me in good stead. So, uh, you know, when I, I first like sort of really dive back into it seriously again, only in 2016 ish. Uh, so it's been, you know, four, four or five years um, where I've just been doing like, like a full roster of like one-on-one athletes in addition to a lot of custom training plans. And, and I've grown a lot in that time because that has been my mindset. Like I want, <laughs> my thought was I, I fully intend to be a much more competent coach five years from now than, than I am today. Uh, yeah, that's, that's cool. I, it sounds like a interesting sort of how the sort of evolution of that with different sort of phases of coaching as you acquire more knowledge and, and, and write about it. I wonder as well, like how early on did your coaching include nutrition? Cause that's obviously a pretty foundational and big part of a lot of your writing and things too. Yeah. I, I used to do, um, I sort of dip my toes into, you know, like actual standalone nutrition coaching. Um, but I, I gave it up because I, I found it frustrating. You know, when you coach, when you coach fitness, I mean, athletes are going to do what you tell them to do. (laughs) I mean, adherence is really excellent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, With with nutrition, I I found that like, I couldn't, you know, when I start working with a new athlete, like I know I can help the person. Like, I don't know exactly what the road is going to look like, but uh, like I have absolute confidence that I, I can help the person with nutrition. It's not like that. Like people just, like are their own worst enemies, you know, in so mm. many, excuse me, so many ways with diet. I, I remember joking with, with, uh, one runner I coached, like, you know, he, I was coaching him on the fitness side, but he wanted some help with the nutrition. I, I said, honestly, like, like the way I, the way I'm, I'm sure I could help you is if you came and lived with me for six months, <laughs> right? <laughs> like if, if you, if I saw everything you put in your mouth, <laughs> yeah. then, uh, then this could work, but you know, it, it made me realize like, that's pretty much the only way I could, uh, with a few exceptions, the only way I could really guarantee the same level of success with nutrition, 
would be like, like I've got a couple spare bedrooms in my home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I don't really, you know, because I do have knowledge, you know, and an interest, I, I you know, the coaches, I, I mean, the athletes I coach on training, if they have nutrition questions, uh, I, I handle them, but I'm also, you know, if someone wants a deeper level of help, I'll actually refer them to, to someone else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with the nutrition side of it, I can only imagine it's more challenging because it's so much more wrapped up in our emotional kind of state of being, well-being, um, dogmatic beliefs, uh, just, you know, unconscious and conscious habits and things like that. Do you, like with the sort of amount of coaching you've done and what you've talked, what you're just talking about and what you've seen, is that, you know, core to some of those issues with changing nutrition? Yeah, uh, that, that's a big piece. And, uh, you know, also, I mean, the environment is really working against you, you know, when you want to maintain healthy eating habits, mm -hmm. um, like the, the whole world doesn't want you to succeed <laughs> in that effort. So that makes it hard as well. Um, yeah, th there's, there's a variety of factors. And, and even our own bodies, you know, like we I don't know. Like I've gotten to this point where like, I don't even really crave unhealthy food, but, but I remember very, like, I, I remember distinctly when I was in college and I was like at my heaviest and most out of shape and I didn't like it. Cause I, I, it wasn't that in college, it wasn't that long ago that I'd been fit and, and lean. Mm -hmm. uh, like that was a fairly recent memory. And I would just look at my beer belly and love handles and think, disgusting. <laughs> but, yeah. but then I also remember thinking I, I'm probably going to be this way for the rest of my life. Cause I, I, I wasn't interested in running and I did not have the willpower to change. How, like, I, like, you know, I ate almost all my meals at, you know, the student dining center and they had some healthy food and some not healthy food. And I would eat the not healthy food every time I might go in there saying this time I'm going to choose the healthy food. And I just wouldn't. Uh, so I, I, I know how it is. Um, you know, I, I think I'm living proof that you can shift out of that. But for me, it, it did not happen overnight. It was a process. And I'm glad to be where I am now, where like I, my wife is a great cook. She likes to cook healthy, prepare healthy food. And um, I don't miss the stuff that I used to not be able to leave alone. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so I'd love to come back to nutrition in a bit, but kind of digging a little bit more into, you know, the the training plans, the 80, 20 triathlon book, and sort of a lot of the stuff you outlined there. Um, you know, for somebody signing up for a plan and it populates in training peaks or wherever it is, and, you know, it can go from six up to 15, you know, 20 hours a week. It can feel overwhelming, you know, especially going from maybe one sport to three sports and, and integrating this into life is its own challenge. But, you know, what, in a general sense, you know, how, like if you were to do 90% of the training plan versus 80%, you know, obviously a hundred percent is the goal. Is there, you know, anywhere in there where you feel like you can still be successful without doing a hundred percent of the plan? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, a point I, I make uh, fairly often is that if, if you look at some of the greatest endurance performances in history, um, you know, like an Ironman course record or, you know, a world half marathon record or whatever. And you look at the training that preceded it, 
mm-hmm. it was never perfect ever mm-hmm. like you know like right. so, something that no other human has ever surpassed was came on the heels of imperfect preparation mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's the name of the game so if if you're in the same boat as the best in history uh that's a pretty good boat to be in at the same time you know i i really think that people should be realistic in in their planning um and I remember one guy who who hired me to do a custom training plan for him. He, he said, you know, I want you to, I want, I think he was a runner and he's like, I want to do six runs per week, but realistically I'm only going to do four or five. And so if you can just tell me which ones I can skip and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'll give you a plan with four or five runs per week. Like, right. Like, <laughs> a six runs per week plan where you habitually skip one or two is not a good plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I, I would, if, if that, if, if after, after 15 weeks we look back and yeah, you did four or five per week, like that's a very different training process than, than I thought I was giving you. And mm-hmm. so people need to be responsible in, in, and realistic in deciding, you know, for the the plans, my 80, 80, 20 endurance plans, like, you know, there are different levels, you know, mm-hmm. zero, zero to four, like zero would be, you know, kind of beginner. And I mean, sorry, three, the highest level is like pretty darn advanced. Like, you know, pick, pick a realistic level. Um, and, and we do offer, uh, I sound like a salesman here, but like we do offer a level guarantee. So if, if you pick a level that's either too high or too low for free, we'll swap you to, a different level. And then, yeah, so that's, that's my advice on that front, but to circle back to the beginning, like, yeah, inevitably it's not going to go perfect and that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, another thing that's interesting, like for myself, I've signed up for a 70.3 near the end of the year. And I think like my sort of old self would have just gone full Ironman for my first, you know, sign up ever. And sign up for level two or three of one of your courses. Um, but really trying to like check the ego and be like, no, you know, like I'm going to take, do the 70.3. I'm going to do start with level zero. I've got a long runway, you know, do you find it's hard to have people, you know, be realistic in those senses and like, you know, manage what is just realistic. And, you know, I think that also ties into something like an 80, 20, where so much of it is low intensity, you know, going zone one, zone two can be really slow and really challenging and getting, getting people to slow down holistically is, uh, yeah. How do you find that? I would say there are probably, you know, two basic types, like those who, who kind of just accept that, it's endurance sports, right? It's, it's a slow grind. Um, and then others who, you know, maybe they understand that intellectually, but they, you know, they know where they want to get and Mm -hmm. they're in a hurry. Um, and those athletes, you know, they can be, it, it can be difficult to manage their expectations. Um, but that, that's, that's just the name of the game. You know, you know, for mm-hmm. me, uh, the ones who want to get ahead of themselves, I, I just try to keep reminding them, them progress is progress. And, you know, if, if you're taking it one step at a time, you're consistently making progress and, and that's good. It, it might not be fast. I mean, it's, uh, it's what 
the the evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould would call a a call a punctuated equilibrium, like where so, you know, there are periods when it doesn't seem like you're making any progress. And then there are like little breakthrough periods too, where mm-hmm. it at least feels like you got a lot fitter in a, in a short period of time. Uh, but, but overall, it's just this, it's kind of like a very false flat. <laughs> um, but, but if you can, if you can, if you can embrace the, the, the mantra progress is progress, then it can be easier to accept that it's not necessarily rapid progress. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, like holistic life coach, you know, in all aspects of life, be it like spiritual, emotional, physical, it's always kind of preaching like 1% each day. And I really try and like hold that mantra close. Cause you know, there's days where I don't feel super fresh, don't feel super good. And it's like, well, you know, that 30 minute run is the 1% for today. And just remembering that and, and it makes it a little bit easier to do rather than to just like throw it out the window. Yeah. I mean, truly it, it all hangs together. Um, you know, it, it, everything contributes, you know, like, like epic workouts are not the only tool, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, days off, yeah. you know, quality sleep. Those are that they contribute just as much. They're just not as sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy to associate progress with like, the hardest work. Um, and mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. I, I love Epic workouts, but, yeah. but you know, they're, you know, they're one piece of a, of a, a puzzle with many pieces. Yeah. It feels like in, in recent years, like rest and sleep is getting so much more attention and people are starting to see the value in that a lot more, but it's still sometimes challenging. Like you just said, like a rest day, you know, feels like, I'm not doing anything, but like you just said, you are in fact doing something like that is progress that is contributing to the forward momentum. Do you find that that's something that's been a lot easier to coach with people recently or, or is it still pretty challenging? Yeah. I I feel like, you know, the, you know, the, the recovery piece and stuff like that, people have been talking about that as far back as I go, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. Um, you know, perhaps the, there is, um, yeah, I will say that I do see a little, little bit like broader currency in, in the idea that, you know, balance is, is necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's still fundamentally the, the same where um, people get it. But but they they often like give lip service. Yeah. Like t- take something like sleep. Are people actually sleeping more than they were like athletes than they were twenty years ago? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They know they should, but you know w- when you look at like where people start cutting corners, it's not the epic workouts. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so on that front, like with the sort of emphasis on the low intensity training, especially with endurance stuff, it just seems so important. And, you know, I'm using heart rate as my sort of guiding foundation. Um, but do you see a lot of people maybe miscalculating that and, and their low intensity still being too high a lot of the time? Yes. Uh, and even more than that, I see athletes, um, kind of becoming over dependent on their devices and, mm. and, and data. Um, I'm actually, I've just started working on a, a book about that. Um, 
you know, it, it's really, it, it's, it's fundamentally about pacing, um, which is, which is just the capacity to regulate your effort. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it applies to training. You know, we think of pacing in terms of competition, but it, it applies in, in training as well. And so I've just been doing a lot of thinking on the topic and a lot of research and, and, you know, and I just, it's not, it's not like jumping out at me, like all these examples of like just over-dependence on, on devices. I'll give you an example. Just yesterday on, on our 8020 endurance forums, there was an athlete who, um, you know, said he was struggling with, um, he was getting discouraged because he, he felt like he, he was using pace and heart rate to try and stay in, in the right zone. And he felt like, you know, my heart rate is getting higher at the same pace. And, you know, it just seems like, um, it's not working and I, like I'm going backwards and like his device was telling as telling him, I mean, he had, he had a Garmin that was telling him that it's like VO two max was going down. And so I, I asked him because I, I've gotten used to this <laughs> type of problem. Mm-hmm. I said, well, how are you actually feeling? If, if you weren't wearing the watch, would you know something was wrong? And he came back and said, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, ding, 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 ding. The problem is your relationship with the device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the training's working, you know, and I see that like, sometimes it's even like a battery issue with a heart right. rate monitor. Like people are like about to call their cardiologist. It's like, <laughs> I'm, coach, I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, just need a new battery in that watch. Right. So that's something to be wary of. I mean, to get back to your original question, um, yeah, so that can be kind of a sub-issue where, where um, but it's really all about, like, all those little issues can be solved if you just remember who's boss. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like y- your device works for, for you. And, it, yes, it takes a little, some knowledge and some experience to get to that point. Um, but still, like, just understanding that, these things have a way of becoming crutches when they're meant to, to be tools. Um, just having that broad understanding can help you work through these issues more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels like keeping that perspective of them being tools or training wheels in a sense where it's like you know, the ultimate goal is to be able to be aware and in tune with our bodies enough that we can feel our way through it. But I think so much of our sort of culture has desensitized us to ourselves in a way that it takes a little bit of training to get that, um, that feeling back, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, like the sort of data relying and people just getting so obsessed with it. And it can be like a battery, like you said, that's not mouth, that's not functioning right. Or, um, you know, people may be using the heart rate on the wristwatch, which maybe is less accurate, you know. Um, I wonder, like, from your perspective, like, what's the sort of ideal amount of that tracking that sort of works before it goes over the top? Because there's obviously there's like sleep trackers and 24 hour things. Right. And there's like the heart rate monitor, or the power meter, or the um, watch. And so, like, do you find that there's like a, a healthy balance rather than having 10 different tracking devices? Yeah, uh, it's funny. Uh, this is a well-timed conversation because of the, the research I've been doing. But uh, there are a couple studies that I was just just writing about uh, yesterday. Um, one was actually it was a study on device dependency in runners, and you know the the 
psychologists who who did the study, their hypothesis would be that um, less experienced runner, runners would tend to be more device dependent, more experienced runners less. And, and that was true. Like individual psychological characteristics also played in, but definitely more experienced runners tend to be dev- device dependent. And what, what they also found was that um, so there was like, it was a step-by-step process that you could see, again, it wasn't every runner who went mm-hmm. through the same process, but there was a clear trend where um, the, the more experienced runners became in using their devices, the more focused they became and selective in, in, in specific feature use. So I th- they had a list of like, it was probably 10 different specific features and there's a graph showing like they had four different buckets of experience. It was like one to three years, four to seven, whatever. Um, and the, the most experienced runners, 11 plus years of experience, used every single feature of the 10 less. <laughs> All of them, including like time. <laughs> right. That doesn't mean they didn't use it. Mm-hmm. Like I think 78% said, yes, they, I, they monitor time but it just goes to show you that like you don't really need most i I don't want to despair like any one of those features can be useful Mm -hmm. but it's very interesting and instructive to see what what it tends to look like and and then there was a another study a little bit different in nature but kind of made the same point where they had they had cyclists and triathlete do um uh simulated indoor time trials under two circumstances one, they were just given one bit of uh, performance feedback or objective data. And I, I want to say it was like elapsed time, I, I think it was. And then, and, and then the same athletes in a separate occasion did the same time trial where they were given like six different metrics. And they actually performed worse <laughs> when they had more metrics. Mm-hmm. Like when they could just focus on one thing, which was just time they, yeah. they perform better. Like their attention was just put to better use. So, uh, yeah, again, like any specific, like, I mean, if, if you just love to track your sleep and it works for you and you truly are the boss of that feature, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yes, I mean, less is typically more like, you know, if you just, if you become like a true master of pacing and, and just controlling the whole training process and, and race race execution, you're probably going to be someone who is not scattered in, in their data usage. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine, like you said about the sort of lip service before, it can also just be like, you know, people like, Oh, what's going on? This isn't working. And it's like, can create a lot of like second guessing. And especially when you're too zoomed in and you don't have that like more wider perspective, I think like in my process, I'm really just, I'm using like the times of the, you know, training sessions. Um, and then really just trying to look at the heart rate and follow that as like the output or the exertion level and really not look at like pace per mile or kilometer or how far I've gone or things like that. And Mm -hmm. just try and trust as much as as possible the process beyond those. But yeah, I can see like, Oh, I'm not sleeping well and then not doing anything about it, or I'm not getting faster and then not changing anything necessarily you're just like dwelling in this like misinterpretation of the data possibly 
Yeah, and, and that's that's where it gets. Um, you know, you can look at some of the the psychological characteristics that feed mm. into that, and that's a little thornier because your your personality is your personality, right? Mm. But certain <laughs> certain personality characteristics do lead people down that path, and really, what it is is, um, you know, pe- people tend to become more scattered and and dependent on the stuff when they when they don't feel in control. It's it's really a lack mm. of self trust. Like the more self trusting you are the more you just, you, you tune things out, you know, you know, like someone says, look at this metric. Isn't this a, a beautiful, shiny metric that you might want to use? And you're like, no, not interested. <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm doing. And, and so that's what, that's where you want to get to. Um, so I honestly think, and this is one of the things I love about endurance sports is that the, the process of becoming a better athlete is also a growth journey. Like, you know, like you, you can become like, a more fully realized version of yourself simply in pursuit of getting faster. You know, if you, if you choose to embrace it that broadly. Yeah, no, I think that's like the best part of it probably, or the, the most exciting potential, at least I was going to ask too, like when people come to you, you know, I imagine most people are looking for, for training for like increase in performance at whatever level, potentially like guidance on nutrition, but how often do you see that sort of evolution and growth in terms of like a personality or like, yeah, a, a more evolved realization of, of themselves? Yeah, it, it, that, that's tough. You know, I wrote a blog post uh, within the last year. Uh, I think the title of it was, um, Are You a Chosen One? And, and where I, I, I talk about how... And, this is tough stuff. Like me, I'm just a truth teller. Like, I I really think that like, if you see something and you know, it's true, say it, you know, cause it Mm -hmm. ultimately, I don't think there's any other alternative way to to get anywhere. And if you, if you piss a few folks off, (laughs) oh, well, but the point I was making there is like, not everyone is actually capable of change or at least, you know, not much. Like I gave an example of like, you know, people, who go to church for, you know, every Sunday for 10 years. And like, you know, the whole congregation gets the same sermons every Sunday. Mm. And then some people really take it to heart. And after 10 years, they're, they've, they've gone a long way. And then there are going to be other people sitting right next to them in the pews who haven't budged, you know, they've heard the same thing, but they just, and they may even, they may even think, you know, it just, you know, makes them feel good while they're, in the building and they, they may think they're getting somewhere, but it's just not, it's not taking it and uh, dangerous analogy, but like, it really is the same. And the type of, you know, for me like that, I agree with you. Like that is the most exciting part of it is that, that you can change as a person. Um, but, you know, it just doesn't always happen. You know, like you know, a lot of athletes can be exposed to the same opportunity. It's really no different to give another analogy. Like, going to college, like not everyone takes advantage. Like it's just right. awesome opportunity. And, and some people just coast and party and <laughs> whatever. So it's, it's there, it's there for the taking, but I mean, you're the one has, that has to reach out and take it. And for me, it is, you know, it's, there's nothing from a coaching perspective, there's nothing more exciting than seeing people take it. Like, that's why, you know, I really like it when I've get to work with an athlete for years um, and not to say like, I'm more mature or advanced than the people I coach. Like, you know, like I'm, they, they could sit here in the seat I'm in and tell you what's wrong with me, <laughs> but, 
but you know, I am the coach and, and sometimes I get to see real development happen and it, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's super exciting. And, you know, with my own sort of more of the holistic life coaching, you know, it, it's, it feels like magic to see that sometimes. And, you know, I find a big part of the, the role that coaches play some in the, in that way. And that sort of side of the spectrum is like helping people see the evolution that they're making. Cause it can be so easy to get bogged down when you're in it, you know, grinding potentially every day. And it, I think it's more natural for humans to sort of dwell on the, the challenges maybe than the wins a lot of the time. So how often, like, how do you see that as a coach, that role of sort of, you know, being like, Hey, you know, you did this, you're making this progress and almost giving them like permission to see the wins. Yeah. Any, any athlete who works with me for a period of time, like, uh, you know, I think every athlete enjoys pleasing their coach. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's part of it. And I, I think people, when they start working with me, they, they might have certain expectations for what will please me. Like, crushing a workout and mm. that they soon discover like that's not it <laughs> <laughs> it really isn't uh and, and yeah so the ones who stick with me like they, they see that those you know those are the types of things that that it's almost actually um and i wrote a blog post about this recently as well like it's almost like i i i view my role as a as a coach as like i'm trying to put myself out of a job like i'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to make myself unnecessary <laughs> um and 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 when i see that happening like that's like when when, when an athlete does makes a great decision or like just improvises under pressure or stress in like a smart way um like they get major pat on the back from me for Mm -hmm. that. Um, and, and when, like I I had one athlete, I coach who like periodically he would say like, you know, so were you impressed? You know, like if he did his fastest half mile intervals, I'm like, no, like if you had run them faster than anyone ever in the history of the world. Yeah. I would have been impressed, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, (laughs) that's not, that's not what does it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's been a funny theme. Maybe one of the podcasts I listened to with you, but some other people too, where it's like, nobody cares about your PR. Like nobody cares about that, right? But like when you are becoming a more evolved and tuned, connected human being in a more holistic sense, that's, you know, impressive no matter, you know, it's like the unquantifiable stuff that can be more impressive. Yeah, and and in a sense, because it is harder, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that's, that's, I mean, I mean, you, you can't be impressed by breathing, you know, like that, I mean, you have to do something special right? <laughs> yeah. and, and growth is hard. And when it's achieved, it is special. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the things that drew me to, to triathlon and more endurance stuff and getting back into that. And, you know, so much of the last few years, personally, it's been, okay, how can I trust my heart more? in my career, in my relationships, in my relationship with myself and my family. And it's such an unquantifiable thing that when I started reading more about like heart rate based training, I was like, oh, this is interesting because it's sort of a Mm -hmm. quantifiable way to sort of learn to trust your heart more and Mm -hmm. let that guide you kind of get the ego out of there a little bit more. And, you know, just begin to listen to your body, listen to that sort of guiding compass in in all of life more and that was kind of 
something that made me feel like, okay, this is, has a deeper purpose, you know, than just completing some race. Yeah. Great. Uh, very, very well said. And, and yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more in, in my most recent book, the comeback quotient, I, I try to, you know, cause I feel like I've come so far in, in my own journey. Um, and you know, I, I've got gotten to a point now where, like I'm so self-trusting and nothing scares me. <laughs> like, mm. you know, and it's just such a beautiful feeling. Like, you know, things go wrong um, and I don't want them to, but I, I don't waste any time or energy what, wondering if things might go wrong or hoping they don't go wrong. Cause I know I'm going to be fine. <laughs> right. It just doesn't really matter. Like I control what I can control and if things really go sideways, I know I'm going to be fine. And, and sometimes I even like it, you know, I, it takes about this long for me to go from, oh, crap, to let's see what's possible here. Like, yeah. you know, like, like when I, you know, I got uh, COVID very early on, like uh, early March last year, sick for a month, you know, lost more fitness in less time than I have in since I first quit running <laughs> yeah. at the end of high school. And, you know, there was like this, you know, this briefest moment where I'm like, Oh God, this sucks. <laughs> Cause I was like super fit. Like when, when it hit, but you know, it, it, like in no time, I'm like, Oh, this is going to be interesting. Like, you know, w- when I start over, I'm going to be so unfit. Like I want to see like, you know, given like all my knowledge, all my experience and all my self-trust, I want to see how fast I can get it back. Like, not mm-hmm. bullheaded, not being an idiot and forcing it, but mm-hmm. most like being like persistent and tough. Yeah. But being smart uh, above all, I'm like, this is going to be like a cool experiment. And no matter how well it goes, I'm going to learn a ton. Like I haven't had an opportunity like this because I'm not going to voluntarily miss, right. a month, <laughs> month, miss a month of training. It's like, you know, my, my point is like anyone can get there, you know, because I, I sure as heck did not start anywhere close to that you know, being capable of that, that mindset. And, and when you do get to that point and not to suggest that the journey is ever complete, but mm-hmm. when you get there, it, it, it's just, there's no better feeling just to, to have that kind of confidence that it's like, you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that sort of sense of, of inner peace and, and freedom in a sense is, is kind of like the ultimate goal and creating that you know, that sense of safety, I think so so many of us, it's like for some period of time, there's a, we're trying to find that externally, be it like number in the bank account or have the house or, you know, run it, whatever it is, like have whatever gear. And then, you know, there's a process of like, oh no, I need to create this deeper sense of safety and confidence from within myself. And that is what allows like what you're talking about. And it reminds me of I just finished re-listening to the book, The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. I don't know if you've ever uh, listened to that, but his whole sort of life is like this whole unfolding of this thing where all these challenges come up and he's like, well, my preference would have been for something else to happen. But, you know, the universe is bringing this challenge and it's it's that opportunity for something new to come from it. It's so powerful. Just wrote that one down. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a <laughs> great, really good. great book. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, so, you know, that's interesting with your experience with COVID. And I, I think that you mentioned as well that you've 
been dealing with some longer term issues coming out of that. I was wondering if you could share some of that too. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I mentioned that I was sick for a month and then uh, my comeback went great. And it was, it was just an absolute blast. Um, and I was healthy for six months and then I started to unravel. Um, I thought I might have like iron deficiency or something initially. Um, and, but it, it's become apparent that I'm, I'm a long hauler. Um, just, I don't think it's super usual for like you know, that kind of six month gap between the active viral mm-hmm. in, infection and, and the long haul thing. And so that started in early October. So I'm coming up on seven months in, I think. And interestingly, um, also, I never had a positive um, COVID test or even an antibody test. By the time I got the antibody test, which which was negative, it was it was worthless. I mean, I I know because <laughs> I've had some of like just the bizarre like phantom smells type mm. of stuff, and yeah, just up and down the line, it's it's COVID. Um, but it, it, but my doctors don't you know, they need a test. So, you know, they've just been looking at like, I've, I've listed all the symptoms I've had of, of, the, of the long haul part of it. And it's 21, you know, some, they come and go wax and wane, but so it's a lot of symptoms and, <laughs> and the doctors just like, they take one symptom at a time and send me to a specialist to look right. at like <laughs> one piece of the puzzle, which is just stupid. But in, in the process of this, um, I, I, I was discovered that I have a heart condition that is not COVID related. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, when that, when that happened, I, I and also that, and um, you, most exercise helps most things like you, I mean, you could have cancer and exercise would by and large be a good thing to, to keep in the mix, but with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is um, kind of like a version of, well, chronic fatigue syndrome tends to occur post-virally, you know, even before COVID. So, you know, they say exercise, they call it post-exertional malaise. And my instinct for the longest time was to keep doing what running I could. You know, you know everything was short, everything was slow, everything was by feel. But, but I felt like it, on balance, even if it doesn't feel good, it's got to be good. But, you know, I started researching that and it's like probably not this mm. post-exertional malaise. You could actually be like prolonging the whole thing. And then I got the heart diagnosis and I'm like, you know what? I just need to pull, pull the plug on, on running, but, but same deal. I mean, you know, I think, I mean, people who are familiar with my career know that like running is a huge part of my life Yeah. and I stopped, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember the last time I, I ran now and I'm totally okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really am. I just like, I feel like this is okay too. Like it's, Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there are moments when I miss it intensely, but, but that's fine, you, you mm-hmm. know? And, and for me, it's just like, this is the next, I'm still the same person. I still have like the same drives and, and passions and stuff. And now I'm just like finding different ways to express them and manifest them and like making lemons out of lemonade. Like, you know, my, my wife is like for, for decades has had to like, you know, fit around my obsession with endurance training. And now like we're on exactly the same exercise program, like two, two mile walk in the morning, two mile walk in the afternoon together. And it's great. It's pretty cool. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I I may never run again. I I, I might, I probably won't compete again. Um, But yeah, it's, it's all good. Yeah. And if that would have happened like maybe four or five years ago, I imagine it would maybe be a little bit of a different, process internally 
Yeah. You know, to be quite honest, like it's not, you know, it's all not all a function of like my, of, of me being where I am like spiritually or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's also like, I, I I don't have any unfinished business as an athlete. And that, that definitely helps because until just a few years ago, I I very much did. (laughs) And so, yeah, it would have stung a lot more, even just, yeah, say five years ago. Yeah. So were there a couple of like significant boxes that you ticked in the last few years then, like in terms of races or times or goals that you accomplished? I mean, yeah. I mean, my, my great white whale forever was, um, a sub two forty marathon. Like, you know, I I knew just from the times I ran in high school that I should be able to do that. And, uh, but it just, it just didn't happen. Uh, And, um, part of it was like, you know, I lost a lot of time to injury after injury, after injury and just other stuff. It just never came together. Um, and I actually let go of it, you know, cause I was, I was 40 and then 42 and then 44. And at some point I'm like, well, like I know enough exercise science to know, like, you know, the, it ain't happening. I mean, not that people that age don't PR, but they don't, they don't, when they started running at 11 and ran their first marathon at 28, and set their existing PR at 37 and now they're 46 and they haven't come within eight minutes of that PR despite many attempts. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't happen. But then, um, I I spent a summer, the summer of 2017, uh, for a writing project, living and training and racing with a professional running team based in Flagstaff. Um, and I'm spoiling the end of my book, uh, about it running the dream, but I did it at 46. I ran a 239 marathon and of course it was like way more awesome an achievement for having been so long deferred. I mean, I, I literally like made peace with it never happening and moved on and then it happened. So there was that. And then I had done one Ironman when I was 31. Um, and it went okay. You know, you make a lot of mistakes in your debut. And then after that kind of similar deal, I actually signed up for, I think, four other Ironmans, none of which I started <laughs> because of injury. And then so at 48, I finally um, did my, my, my second Ironman. And, you know, I, I just wanted to just, you know, just have a race that would just feel like I had, had closure on it. And, you know, I, I definitely wanted to beat my 31-year-old self and and I did. <laughs> so, so yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. And I think, you know, like yourself and there's some other athletes out there that are doing pretty amazing things as they're aging. And it's probably a combination of, you know, the sort of spiritual development uh, alongside like just a smarter understanding of themselves and the training and the nutrition and all that stuff. And, so it's, it's inspiring to see because I think like I'm 35 now and to think like, wow, I have, I can get better for the next 10, 15 years. Like that's pretty cool. Cause it's not you, it's not the norm, I guess, as like a human athlete. Yeah. The game is changing and it, it you yeah, know, that, that's, that's part of what made this, you know, until I had to pull the plug, it was, it became a more and more of a motivator for me. Like I, I wanted to be kind of, excuse me, like a, a pioneer of like redefining the, the limits. Uh, you know, I, I ran a 10 K PR, but in, during that six month window, like post COVID and pre long haul, oh, wow. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, they've got the super shoes now, which, which certainly helped, but I mean, 
I don't care what kind of shoes I, I was wearing. Like I was way fitter and faster at 49 than I ever thought I, I would be. And yeah. yeah, it was, it was, not, it was cool. I, I just felt young. I mean, I still do, even though I'm not running. So yeah, a huge part of it is um, just like understanding that like fitness sits on a foundation of health. And, you know, if you look back at like, you know, the top marathoner, you know, top runners of the seventies, the first running boom, they, yeah, they were, <laughs> they didn't do all that other stuff. <laughs> they just ran hard and ran a lot, yeah. but it shows you what you can get. Uh, if you, if you just, you know, just don't give more than lip service to the total health picture. Yeah, totally. So for myself, I, I've got a couple more like sort of personally related questions. Um, mm-hmm. So in 2015, I ran my my first and only marathon and I ran it in 2.58. And that year I ran a 1.20 half marathon and, and my 10K PR was uh, just over 37 minutes. And, you know, it's not anything insane but for me i was feeling quite good and pretty light and you know it's decent time and then post this second uh, acl injury so much of the last couple of years has been relearning uh, like motor recruitment and you know core strength and yeah you know my body changed quite a bit uh, with more strength training and sort of mobility and lifting heavier weights and things i'd never done before and so now it's been like three months or so, four months, maybe of a lot of low intensity stuff and now getting into a proper training plan. Um, so a relatively short period of time, but I wonder like what you see as people get into proper endurance training and building up their aerobic system. Like there, I imagine there's going to be sort of a slow evolution of like change in body, body composition, I wonder if there's any sort of general trends or timelines that you see in that process. You know, my temptation is to tell you to not even think that way. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I guess that is kind of my answer. It's like, you know, like, you know, coach, what's the future? (laughs) Yeah, totally. I I don't know. Like, it's just, it really Mm. is like, like, like if I were your coach, I would say it's like, okay, what should we be doing in the process that we're not doing? Yeah. If, if we're doing everything right, then it's going to happen at the pace it should happen. Right. <laughs> like that we can control. Mm-hmm. I seem to have lost track of my crystal ball. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know how fast, I mean, quite honestly, and you know, maybe another coach, if you ask that question, they would just pretend they knew the answer. Yeah. Be like, oh, in a case like yours, you can, you know, six months, you'll be feeling right as rain. And they would be lying to you. They would, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you're young, you're motivated. It sounds like, like you, you understand what the process should look like. So mm-hmm. you're going to get there. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I just don't. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. And I think that's a good answer. And I, I, you know, as, somebody who's trying to learn to coach themselves as well. You know, it's like, that's what I keep telling myself, you know, don't think about that. Don't worry about that. Just do, you know, the workouts today, make the good choices with sleep and nutrition today and and just try and stay present with, with each choice each day and that process and, and enjoy that as much as possible. Like I try to bring myself back to that, but it's funny, the older I've got, the less patient I had become the more it's like, how can I 
expedite this process, you know, and really trying to change that thought pattern is maybe the hardest part of this process so far, I think. Yeah. Well, one thing you might do that, you know, could, could be helpful is to, you know, set up little, you know, little intermediate uh, goals or, you know, what, what's really helpful when, I mean, you know, it's going to take a while to get where you really want to go, but there can still be moments along the way where you get a taste of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, like I'm not back, but I'm getting there. Mm-hmm. And if you can think in terms of like, what, what, what kinds of experiences might I have, you know, a, you know, a few weeks from now and a few weeks after that, that would just give me just, I mean, everyone needs that. <laughs> a little motivation, right? Yeah. So I don't know exactly what form those might take, but just little opportunities to prove to yourself that it's working and you're, and you're getting somewhere. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. So I did want to talk a little bit more about the nutrition stuff specifically. You've written quite a bit about it in terms of the the endurance diet and also about sort of different fads and diets that people have attached to, especially in the sort of niche of the health world that I sort of look at and, and exist in, I guess, like the paleo keto, uh, high fat bulletproof coffee stuff is like really prevalent. And I have fallen into some of those, um, categories, you know, at different times. Um, and I'm at a point now where I almost feel confused, you know, there's just so much out there and so many, everyone claims all the science backs up there version of it and you know listening to to you speak on other podcasts and talking about the sort of the endurance diet and what profession professional or elite athletes are doing is just eating really healthy whole foods for the most part you know like I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your sort of insight into that and um yeah what you can share in terms of any sort of like overarching themes or guidelines yeah and, you know as an athlete my, myself former athlete or whatever, <laughs> whatever I am. Um, my instinct was always to look at what the best are doing and like not one top professional because they mm. could be weird, but just like in general, like I want to train the way they're training. I want to think the way they're thinking and I want to eat the, the way they're eating. And mm. science is just so easy to abuse. And even when it's done well, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I've become, you know, I look at a lot of science and one thing I've learned about it is like even a really well done experiment that like seems to have some rel- like practical relevance can be totally impossible to really apply <laughs> to the real world. And it's just like, it's so neat and tidy that it's just not even real. And, and so I've always, I've just been on this path where I pay attention to the science and I go by best practices and, you know, same with, with diet. Um, you know, one thing I find myself saying often on this topic and other ones is that like you, you can't, as an athlete, you can't necessarily be an expert on these things, but you need to be able to, you need to have good taste in experts. (laughs) You, You need to be able to know, like if you have like 10 people telling 10 experts telling you 10 different contradictory things that you should do with training or diet or whatever, you need to have the judgment or, you know, just overall wherewithal to know whom to turn tune out and who to listen to. And, and for me, like, you know, I get it that I was already well down the road when a lot of these fads came along, but still like when I, when I watch 
you know, like a keto guru make their keto pitch, I'm like, you're a carnival barker. You know, it's like, uh, like, I don't, even if I knew absolutely nothing about nutrition, just judging on the basis of your performance, I'm not Mm going to do anything you say, Yeah, you know, whereas, whereas people who are just like, advocating the stuff that I think really works. It's not just that the substance is different. It's not just that they're advocating a different method. Their presentation is very different too. Like they sound Mm -hmm. rational, (laughs) you know, like it's not like fear-based, it's not hyperbolic, you know, they're not trying too hard, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, and I look around, I'm like, can't everyone see this? Like, like this person's a charlatan and this person can be trusted. But I just, I find myself tearing my hair out because, you know, I don't know, like, you know, people find this stuff very seductive. And I, you know, I have friends who, uh, you know, swear by intermittent fasting or whatever, but I, I, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, it's, it's all, you know, when people say oh, it's confusing and, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's hard. I'm like, no, it's simple and easy. It's right there in front of you. Just choose it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in, in the endurance diet, like I make, I make my best pitch, mm-hmm. like, you know, just like I've got what a 250 pages where I'm just trying to get through to people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if that doesn't work, I'm, I'm out of ideas. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Like, you know, looking at some of these different people and figures that are selling these things, there is that very, like the tone and the salesiness of it or the fear based pitches. But then even beyond that, in terms of the presentation, it's a lot of the times I'm like, wait, why am I starting to listen to this person? They don't look very healthy, you know? (laughs) And I feel like even that is a sort of like filter that is maybe not even considered a lot of the time is a very easy one to apply from the start. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the dirty little secrets, I remember talking with someone who was like, you know, just totally like, he was actually an expert. I trust he has like a PhD in nutrition. And, but he he's sort of in that realm, like neck deep in that realm. And he was saying like, Matt, like you wouldn't believe it. Like a lot of these people who promote this diet or that diet, like they don't even eat that way. Like when right. they behind closed doors, they don't even do it. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of scary to think, but and just all the more reason for people to learn to trust themselves more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, this has been a little bit of a theme, but like to a certain extent it, it's on you, you, you know, like, you know, if you have like that, that magic bullet mentality where you want, someone to just wave a wand and make it all better. Well, you get what you deserve. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be buying a lot of magic bullets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Something, something that I've been reading more and more from people that I do seem to trust is that a lot of endurance athletes generally are maybe not getting enough protein. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. Um, hmm. I don't. I don't know. Well, I guess it, I would say yes, uh, but it's kind of, um, it, I would say when, when that's a problem, it's a problem that you create. Um, right. So I like, you know, until fairly recently, like veganism or like plant-based as they're calling it now, wasn't really much, it didn't really have much of a penetration in, yeah. in the endurance sports realm, realm, but that's changing pretty quickly. And so, you know, I, I know of cases with a- athletes who just eliminate animal foods from their diet and then they have problems. And, and sometimes it's iron deficiency. Other times it's, um, you know, the consequences of not having enough protein or amino acids in their diet. Some people are just not eating enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that whole uh, 
reds phenomenon, which is prevalent too. So I don't know, like, I think it's a problem that um, doesn't, is extremely unlikely to appear if you just eat like the pros, as I recommend. Mm. And, you know, I remember like, I often like cite the East African runners as, you know, example, when when people like think that they need supplements in order to be successful Mm -hmm. endurance athletes, I'm like, I've been to Kenya. There are no supplements. <laughs> there, are, there are also no better runners. And, and you know, um, you know, analyses of you know the the diets of elite Kenyan and Ethiopian runners. I mean, they're quasi vegetarian, like because you know meat is expensive and hard to get a lot of uh, for a lot of people in those countries until like they've you know won the Berlin Marathon or, or something. And so like they're barely meeting world health organization standards for protein intake and they're basically fine. I mean, not to say that it wouldn't be nice if they, if they could, you know, have access to all the food they might, they, they might want, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it can happen. It does happen, but I think most often when it does, it was, it was a problem that was created like by, by diet choices that are like extremely easy to reverse. Right. And it was, I guess, like in our sort of Western culture, unfortunately, a lot of the times that people are inspired to starting to eat healthy is to sort of overcome deficiencies or uh, a lack of balance or just some sort of state of not being healthy, I guess. Um, And it feels like more unusual that somebody has just ate healthy their entire life. Um, So, in that sense, like, you know, do you, do you see a time and a place for supplementation? Um, or is it really something that should be able to be avoided with a healthy diet, healthy moving? I mean, it's interesting when you spoke about like the science and and these experiments are just so hyper isolated that it's like nothing really functions in that way. You know, I'm, I'm aware of like supplements too. Like you take one mineral or vitamin and it was never meant to be delivered to the human body in isolation. Mm-hmm. It's wrapped up in all the other things that come with it, with that plant or a piece of meat. Yeah. My philosophy on supplements is like, it's not like they're, they're great. The more the merrier or they're evil, avoid them at all costs. It's like, um, individual supplements can be helpful or even actually necessary in certain circumstances. Like I actually did have my own little flirtation with uh, iron deficiency at one point. It was actually right before I went to Flagstaff to train with the pros. It was, it was discovered, started taking iron supplements, like felt a lot better. (laughs) Uh, So that's, that's kind of how how I look at it. It's just, uh, you need to just, I mean, what I would avoid is like, again, that magic bullet approach is like, um, you know, when, when people think, um, like sports nutrition, what is sports nutrition? What's the first thing they think of? It's like, uh, sports drinks, um, you know, supplements. I'm like wrong. It's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. (laughs) And so if you just avoid getting the cart before the horse and like take care of like the heavy lifts, uh, and then if, if you, yeah, if you've, basically taking care of all that and you need some marginal gains, um, then, then you might perhaps need to, you know, there's like seasonal 
you know, vitamin D deficiency and such that, that, you know, might need to be addressed. So the last kind of topic I wanted to touch on was, um, you know, your career as a writer and sort of parallel to endurance sport and all this. And, you know, you've written a lot of books looking through your website. Um, it's pretty prolific. You know, most people, you know, the idea of writing one book is a crazy, crazy sort of endeavor to embark on. So I'm kind of curious to know like what that process has been like and, you know, how integrated with your movement practices and this, you know, pursuit of endurance um, it's been like, traditionally have ideas and these dots connected to you on long runs, you know, when you're sort of just out in the zone and, you know, is there sort of a back and forth that these different practices and pursuits help one another? Well, uh, you know, I, I grew up, you know, by the time I was a sentient being capable Mm -hmm. of like retaining memories and stuff, like there were books on, bookshelves in my family's home with my dad's name on the spine. Um, And, you know, when I was nine years old and I decided I wanted to grow up to be a writer, there was like a romance to that Mm. to me. Like I, like I wanted to get my first book published from about age 10. (laughs) And, and and so, you know, and I tried like the Dickens pretty much all the way. I think it was, I think I was 30 when I got my first real book contract and I'm like, here we go. It's not going to be the last I can tell you. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and for me, kind of what, you know, it's not really, you know, I don't write books really to make money. Like I I make more money doing, (laughs) doing other things and probably would make more if I stopped writing and put all (laughs) of my time into those other things. So it's not really that. um, And it's not really, I don't know for its own sake, it's because I have things to say, (laughs) you know, that's why, like, I won't write another book if I don't like, you know, you know, it is a lot of work, like you said. Um, and there's really no guarantee that there's, they're going to succeed. I've had flops. Um, so it's a pretty big commitment. And, And for me, like, I'm not going to make that commitment unless I have this like sense of urgency around like, the message uh, I'm trying to convey or just the, the thing I want to create. So I, uh, the way I explained it to people is like, the feeling is like, I can't possibly like, please, Lord, don't let me die before I finish this book. Like, like if I can get to that place, um, then that that's a book I need to write. I need to finish. Um, and, and I'm just, um, you know, all, all the time, just the way my brain is wired. Like I'm not really good at um, like, like retaining knowledge. Like there are certain things my brain isn't really good at, but my brain is very good at finding the gaps. Like sometimes I'll just be watching the news or whatever. And like a, a, like a conversation will take place between an interviewer and an expert. I'm like, they're, they're missing this thing, this thing that should be touched on. They're not saying it like, and, and, and that's the way my brain operates in the endurance context all the time. It's like, you know, there's this gap here that like <clears throat> somebody ought to fill. And, and then I'm like, well, why not me? Yeah. <laughs> and that's usually how it comes about. So I'm just like, I'm driven by my curiosity and my, my kind of natural knack for uh, finding something that I feel needs to be said that no one has said yet. Like my, my, my worst nightmare. Well, I'm just like, like I, I would never 
I don't understand who people like who do kind of like pile on type of messaging or me too type of messaging, not, not the political me too, the, uh, the other one, where it's just like, yeah, what he said, like, I, I, I'm never going to write anything that, that is just kind of reinforcing something that someone else has already said. It's almost like, even though I'm writing like books intended to really help athletes, I almost treat it like a novel, you know, it's like, you're not going to write a novel that someone else has already written, right. you know, just like, you know, just another cookie cutter detective story or, or whatever. So, mm-hmm. you know, I could completely run out of ideas, but I don't know. Cause my dad is, you know, he's 77 and he's still, I'm very much like, we're very different types of writer, but like he's an idea factory. Like he, he still writes several hours a day. So I think I'm probably headed in the same direction. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it. I mean, you, you just seem to have such a curious, enthusiastic sort of perspective and outlook on life. And I can only imagine like, as you embrace that more and more, it, it just continues and doesn't diminish. Yeah. Yeah. I'm tempted to say, I hope so. But I, you know, at one time I hoped I would never have to stop running. So yeah, it'll be okay if I do run a bike. <laughs> yeah. And have you ever written anything like more fictional or been drawn to doing that? My dad's a fiction writer pr- primarily, and and no, um, I, I don't. I could not write fiction, or you know, I could if you made mm-hmm. me, but it would not be good. Um, but I did. I do like narrative writing, and 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 so very slowly over the course of my career, if like if you took all of my books and lined them up and just kind of charted the evolution, like there was a point at which I sort of, you could see me transitioning more into narrative writing. So, but I, I need to have true stories to tell. I mean, you know, I wrote uh, Iron War, which about the great rivalry between Dave Scott and Mark Allen in the 1980s, culminating in the race that is forever known as Iron War. Um, and that book, it, funny enough, it just went out of print. Um, and, and so my agent just found a new publisher to, to bring it back. So I've, you know, that book came out in 2010, 20, I think 2011. Um, and so I haven't looked at it in a long time, but it's like, it's been thrust back in front of me because mm-hmm. of this. And like, that was sort of the book where I went all in. I mean, th- that book is almost pure storytelling and I mean, it's a fantastic story, but I didn't create it. Like the story was just there. Um, and I just needed to do an absolute ton of research, uh, you know, to, to bring it fully to life. And I, uh, you know, I, I loved it, but, you know, I, I'm probably, it's probably even not, you know, I like exegesis more than like, pers- I like persuading people. Like if I could only do one thing, I think that's probably what I'm best at, but I really love the, the narrative writing um, have done a quite a bit, bit of it. And, and, but if I don't have a, a true story to tell, I, I can't like make up characters or that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So your latest book, the comeback quotient is really about sort of mental resilience and, and the sort of mindset. Um, what was the sort of inspiration or spark that made you feel like you had to dive into that and share that? And what were some of the key sort of themes that you really like found as you did that? Yeah, I, I view uh, the comeback quotient kind of as, as a sort of sequel to how bad you want it. You know, and how bad you want it. I, um, you know, that's about mental fitness as well. But it really sort of introduces this um, this biopsychological model of endurance. The idea that that in endurance sports uh, we are limited by perceptions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when people hear that, they think I'm saying that we're limited by figments of our imagination. I'm like, no, perceptions are every bit as real as, <laughs> you know, a mallet to your head. <laughs> right. But like, that's the nature of our, our limits. And most people don't know that. Um, and it's, it's a total paradigm change. And so in that book, I really explore what, what are the implications of that? Um, and it, it, there's a lot of narrative in that, that as well. It's partly because, you know, I write the sort of books that I don't read many sports books because mm-hmm. I, I mean, most of what I read is fiction. I was an English major in college. Like, so, so I use narrative because I just think I, I like stories. I know other people like stories. And I think mm-hmm. stories can be a great way to communicate mm-hmm. a message. So, so in, in that book, you know, I had a lot of fun writing it. it it's been successful and well-received, but if there's a knock on it, which I did hear from sort of early Amazon reviewers, it's like, it doesn't like, it doesn't sort of give you the steps. It's not a book that does like a lot of handholding. It, it gives you right. a, like a perspective and a, a lot of inspiration. A lot of people who read it are fired up and they're like, now what do I do? <laughs> yeah. And so the comeback quotient is kind of like, now, now what do you do? <laughs> Um, yeah. And it just grew out of mostly my, my coaching work where like I, I focus a lot on developing mental fitness and the athletes I coach. And um, some, some ways I just feel it's so helpful not to be a scientist, not to be knowledgeable and just have to learn from the, in the trenches. And, mm-hmm. and the thing I just, you know, similar to the, like with training, like I just started through experience to develop my own ideas about things and, and what I what I began to see um, was that mental fitness for me was all about facing reality. You know, like when I saw an athlete like fail to cope skillfully with adversity, it's because they've either failed to accept the reality or having accepted it, they failed to embrace that reality, which just means committing to making the best despite or having accepted and embraced it, they failed to address, address the reality. They just weren't willing to do what it took, um, you know, to, to actually turn lemons into lemonade. They, they get to the point where like, it would be nice to turn this into lemonades, right? but, but it's too hard. Um, so, you know, that to me, that's it in a nutshell. That's what I try to do for myself. That's the point where I try to get my athletes. So um, I just like it. Cause it's like, it's super pragmatic. Like, you know, I don't, I'm not the kind of person who wants to like do like carve, carve out 20 minutes a day for mental training exercises. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? I would rather read <laughs> right, or take a nap or something. But to me, it's like, there's no need for that because the, you know, the way I do it with my athletes is like, you can count on problems coming up. And those problems need to be solved and solving the problems in sort of an intentional systematic way can be your mental training. Like you don't need extra time for it. Like those problems are, are going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I do it. And that's sort of what I, I try to teach in, in that book. It's just, it's just, a, it's just an approach to problem solving that functions as mental fitness development. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, life is the mental fitness like tool, uh, every day. There's going to be some level of problems, big or small to overcome. And I think, 
you know, there's obviously a necessary level of awareness to bring that attention uh, and intention to. So, you know, developing that, obviously having a coach can be very helpful, but when somebody's doing it on their own, do you find tools like meditation or journaling helpful in terms of developing the awareness to be able to bring the intention daily to the, to that exercise? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, both of those tools come up in in the book. Um, Like they're not like, like core parts of the system, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but uh, they, they can be very helpful because it's a little bit, um, you know, I, 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 what I tell people is like, anytime you experience a negative emotion, it's, it's like, it's the emotional equivalent of pain. Like it's, it's the organism signaling a problem. Like, how Mm -hmm. do you know there's a problem? Because you're experiencing a negative emotion Mm -hmm. and, and in order to have any chance of, solving the problem that's being signaled by that emotion in in the most effective way possible, you have to have um, meta awareness of it. Like you can't just be inside the emotion because if you are, the emotion is going to tell you what happens. But if you're able to, uh, you know, achieve kind of a a metacognitive distance from the emotion, then you see possibilities. It's like, it's, it's like, well, this is how I feel. It's real. I can't wish it away. But like, what's the problem that's being signaled by it? And what can I do about it? Sometimes all you can do Mm -hmm. about it is just a perspective shift. Other times you can actually just do something practical and physical to address the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a bit of a catch 22, right? Like you need awareness to have awareness. And if you're not in the habit of of that, like how, how do you get there? Um, and that's where things like meditation and, and journaling, they, they can become things that sort of train you to do that reflexively. For me, I, I've just done it on the fly. I, I've just done it through, and in point of fact, that's how it happens with meditation. My, my, my older brother is a Zen Buddhist, and I've done some meditation at, at the Zen center he used to live in and, and just under his influence. I, I've, I've tested it out. And what I found is like, you know, in the Zen thing, you, you, all you're trying to do is empty your mind completely, which is impossible. Um, but I mean, you can, it, it's a great tool for achieving that sort of metacognitive perspective because you have to catch yourself thinking when you're supposed to not be thinking. And that's exactly what you're training there. But do you absolutely need um, mindfulness meditation to, to do that? No, because you can do exactly the same thing in the context of training or whatever. It's like your goal is to not let negative emotions just happen. Like you, you, the idea is to realize they're happening. And if, if like, if that's your overarching intention that you just carry with you at first, you're going to suck at it. And it's Mm -hmm. going to, it's only going to be after the fact that you're like, Oh shoot. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I let that emotion totally rule me for an entire day. But like, if if the intention is real, you'll get better and better and better at it. And you know, you, you just shrink that gap down to until it's like almost, well, it is basically reflexive second second nature to be like oh wait a minute negative emotion yeah totally no, i think that's that's definitely vital to any sort of form of well-being but i think it's interesting how you like formulate that sort of relationship with with reality and how much you accept it and take action towards embracing it and making the making the lemonade but you know i think 
everyone's sort of reality is subjective to some degree. And I imagine like as a coach, being able to pr- provide more of an objective perspective is super vital because, you know, I can sit here and know like, okay, yes, when things are, you know, when I get lemons, let's make some lemonade and this is the process, but I think it's still an orange, you know? And, right. and, and like, how often do you find you got to sort of remind the the people you're working with that like, you know, now this is, you know, just like nudging them maybe a little bit closer to what is, re- what the reality is more objectively. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm ruthless in, in that regard. Yeah. Like, and, you know, like I, I, you know, you know, every coach has their own style and, and I'm, I'm like a ruthless hard ass. Like, and, but, mm-hmm. but I mean, that, that is, you know, I think that's fine. It, it, you know, it's just sort of like having a crass sense of humor at a dinner party. Like whoever's left in the room after 15 minutes can be your friend. <laughs> yeah. But, but for me, like, you know, very early on when I start working in, at an athlete, they, they will see that I do, I call BS on them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I simply, even if it's tiny, in fact, I prefer that it start with very small stuff mm-hmm. because it's, it's less threatening to people. Like, I just, I will not let them get away with it, like with maintaining illusions. And then, but I also try to model that, like, like mm-hmm. I allow them to call BS on me or I'll, I'll do it to myself. Um, so that, that takes the threat level down uh, where I see like uh, that I show them same rules apply to this guy. <laughs> totally. and, and, and that, that can be very helpful, but it's constant. Um, you know, there's one of the, every, in the comeback quotient, every book has a, an epigraph. And one of them is um, it's from, I think a psychologist named Robert Travers. And it's uh, uh, the human capacity for self-deception knows no limits. <laughs> and it's true. And I see that in myself, you know, like, you know, I, here I am in the interviewee's chair and I get to talk like I know everything, but like I BS myself a, a lot too, you know, like, uh, you know, my, my wife <laughs> calls yeah. me out probably daily, you know, when I, when I try to maintain illusions. <laughs> yeah. We need those mirrors for sure. And then yes. we need to have the awareness to, you know, not get trapped in those emotions when they, get shown to us. Yeah. And you know, the hardest part for me, cause like I am sort of naturally kind of defensive and, and from what, for me, what took a really long time is to, uh, is to actually like welcome that kind of mm-hmm. BS calling. But, but then when you get to that point, it's super liberating because it, like just nothing's threatening, you, you right. know, it's just like, Oh, well, if it's true, I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It goes from being something that you like take personally to being an opportunity to, to grow. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, Cause ultimately like, I mean, if you ask someone point blank, like, are you perfect? Mm-hmm. Like they're going to say no, but then in practice, they act like they are, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, if you point something out, you know, they're, they they get all offended. I'm like, well, I thought you weren't perfect. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's funny. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, maybe a good spot to leave it. And, you know, again, I appreciate your time and all the wisdom and research and, you know, storytelling and everything. Uh, excited to dig more into the body of work you've put out and, and share this as well. So thank you so much for, for all your work and all that, everything you've been sharing. 
you're welcome. You know, I, I do a lot of podcasts, but uh, I, the, I had a, a lot of fun with this one. So, uh, so you, glad. you did yeah. a good job. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun for me too. So thank you. Right on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.